Welcome to RGM. Are you in a band? Come and join us. Simply click on the RGM submission page, submit your music, and we'll sort the rest. joining us, be it by sea, be it by plane, be it by car, wherever you are, welcome to another edition of the RGM Podcast, with me, Carl Maloney, how are you doing, Yoddy? Nice one. Ladies and gentlemen, what a guest we've got for you today. We've got none other than producer legend, with Tina Turner, Kevin Trent Darby, Got you know, Matt David Bowie. All the stories are coming your way today, ladies and gentlemen. It's Martin Ware, founder of the Human League, Heaven 17, producer to all these amazing people that you know we're going to list very shortly for you. We've got loads of stories coming up, ladies and gentlemen, from a life in the music industry. And there's a lot of ups and downs that happen in the music industry. And Martin tells us all about his. Um, yeah, that's coming up in a bit, ladies and gentlemen. But like we do every week, we just like to have a little chat on that before, you know. Get to know each other a little bit, you know. Uh, yeah, thanks for Sarah Keyworth for joining us on the last podcast. Uh, if you missed that one, delve into the archives. They're all there for you. Uh, number one albums uh, from the Ratons episode with them. John McClaw, I'm going to watch uh, Revenant the Makers tomorrow in Sheffield, uh, which has already happened now because the podcast is coming out Monday, but I will have been to see him at the O2 Academy in Sheffield. That's the plan this weekend, as I record this podcast. Uh, yeah, just basically, they just delve into the archive. There's something in there for everyone. And I mean everyone. Sorry, I didn't mean that to sound creepy. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's loads of stuff to delve into here at the RGM Podcast. Uh, as you probably know, because I bang on about it every week. <laughs> so what's been happening this week? I've had the rather exciting... I mentioned it like about, I think it was seven or eight weeks ago. Could have been longer before Christmas anyway. Uh, that I was interviewed to be part of a Arctic Monkeys documentary on Radio 1. And that's the, I, I didn't realise it had been out for a few weeks. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm in it. I made the edit. Uh, Arctic Monkeys Believe the Hype is available on the BBC Sounds app Uh, so if you're interested in hearing the story of the boys and how it all began um, I'm I'm in episode 3 for a bit Um, but I've I've listened to the whole series and it's great Uh, just nice to be asked Uh, presented by Kate Nash it's got Chris and John McClure in it Youngblood, John Cooper Clark uh, Richard Haller just to name a few so yeah, that's something to delve into this week. A little, um, if you're an Arctic Monkeys fan. On BBC Sounds. I heard my voice on radio. That's weird, isn't it? <laughs> it's, 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 you, can, you can do it. Any, anybody can do it these days on podcasts and stuff. To be on BBC Radio 1. Big thing, that for me. Nice one. So, ladies and gentlemen, we have a good old chat with Martin Ware today. We discuss our love for Sheffield. And discuss the, you know, the, uh, the challenges that Sheffield has as well. Uh, it's still a great good listen, even if you're not from Sheffield, um, just to learn about the place and how it's changed and developed with music and growing up in a band and all that kind of stuff. Um, we talk about how we met David Bowie, 
helped Tina Turner's career turn around. Um, you know, produced albums for many people. There's a great story that we discuss around. Um, I'm not going to spoil it. <laughs> I, I could spoil it there. I nearly spoiled it. So, ladies and gentlemen, let's crack on with a guest. Thank you for joining us again for another week of the RGM podcast. Martin Ware. Take it away. I'm all right. <laughs> You're all right, mate. As a true chef, real lad. Yeah, I am born and bred. Yeah, mate, me too, me too. Uh, support the other side of the city, though, mate, in, in regards to football and stuff, but, you know. There is only one side. So. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. I thought we might get to football <laughs> at some point, both being Sheffield lads. Um, yeah, mate, you know, it's such a great honour to have you on the show, mate. An electronic music oh. pioneer, producer to legends, podcaster now, teacher, you, you know, you're sharing your knowledge of this. Yeah. In music industry um, life that you've led, it's it's really difficult place to start, mate. Having just you know listened to your audio book and you telling me the story of your life, particularly in the earlier days, I feel like yeah. I've been down a Martin Ware uh, rabbit hole, mate. Um, so if I feel a little bit over familiar, it's only because I've been listening to you a lot and enjoying. It's, an, to it's a weird thing writing an autobiography, I have yeah. to say, because excuse me, the one thing I wasn't prepared for is. Yeah. Because uh, when you're writing it, you I mean, yeah. I don't know about other people, and some people use ghostwriters. I wrote every word of it. Yeah. So I wanted to be as honest and as um, true to the kind of Sheffield spirit as possible. Yeah. Um, some would say blunt occasionally. Mm. and um, but But when it's out, then you realise that everybody knows your business. Yeah. I, I wasn't quite, <laughs> I've not fully processed it when I was writing it. It was yeah. just like pouring it out. And then you're going, well, everybody knows all the kind of intimate details of my life now. Yeah. And it felt very strange for a bit, actually, I have to say. I've got used to it now. But. Yeah. So, like, through your career and stuff, did you kind of keep guarded from your personal life? And now this is quite a new experience yeah. of people. I've been, I've never been in love uh, with the idea of celebrity at all. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I am a fairly, I wouldn't say I'm shy now, but I used to be quite a shy person. And, um, and there's always that kind of, which I talk about in the book, actually, this Sheffield thing, I think is real. Mm. It's not just Sheffield, but Sheffield is a perfect example of it. This kind of, it's almost like a consciously we're quite bullshy mm. about, Sheffield's greater than anywhere and you know we can we should be proud of what we achieve and the fantastic things we do and uh, football teams and uh, da, 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 da. but really underneath it all I feel there's a level of lack of confidence yeah. in Sheffield when it's when it's addressing the world and because uh, I come across this a lot and people uh I get asked to be on radio programs and you know, do, uh, write articles and stuff about Sheffield. And it's one of my big themes is this kind of, it starts as a kind of self-effacing thing yeah. uh, and, and not wanting to show off, mm. not wanting to be the big I am. Yeah. But in fact, you need a bit of that to make the most out of your, the opportunity that you've got. So, yeah. I mean, funnily enough, I was my son lives in Manchester, 
They've always had quite an ambivalent relationship with Manchester. Because um, they're the opposite, aren't they? I mean, they are, they are, they are uh, you know, they are brash. Not everybody, of course. I'm talking <laughs> in general. Yeah. In general terms, it's a more confident city. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 it's got more look at us about it. Well, I, and, I uh, agree more. I, and, I, I, and, and the halfway house for me yeah. is like Liverpool, mm. you know, which is like part uh, not for the likes of us and part exceptionally proud of their city, mm. right? So, anyway, no, it, 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 it's really interesting you say that because I'm born and bred Sheffield, lived there 40 years, lived in Manchester for the last four years. So, so right. I, 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 I do see that. And as a Sheffield lad myself, you know, I, I think I'm going through a little bit of a identity crisis myself at the minute you know just feeling like I'm blagging it feeling like you know you know I've, I've built up this magazine RGM that's doing really well across the country now which originated from Sheffield it started as rate good music but I had to change it because people don't understand rate in different parts yeah, of the yeah. word rate in different parts of the country so it's turned to, it changed to RGM and you're right about Manchester it does have this aura about it and arrogance about it um but it, one thing I miss about Sheffield is how green it is when I go back and I've got a new appreciation yeah. for Sheffield when I do go home after not when now I don't live in the city I've got a new appreciation for how great the city is and the people well really uh my son lives uh just at the start of Salford you know right. so across the yeah. river and um literally 10 minutes from the centre and um this bugger all Mm. In terms of green spaces, no, nothing. yeah, they've got the canals and everything, which is quite nice. Yeah, but um, it's it's really intensely mm. industrial or post-industrial, you know. And of course, when you grow up somewhere, you just assume that everywhere is a bit like that, don't you? Yeah. Or you just think that's normal. Mm. But it is an incredibly green city, and one of my favourite things is <clears throat> is when I go to Hillsborough, and my uh, and my. Uh, sister lives in Greenhill mm. and the views from up there yeah. out to the moors are just amazing yeah. and then you take the trip to Hillsborough and you're going up and down the hills and everything and the views are incredible and all that stuff that I took for granted when I was yeah. growing up in Sheffield I used I used to live in a house just up from Mailing Bridge in the big steep bit. I used to walk up that big steep hill going up towards Wisewood and I had a view yeah. I had an amazing view over um over Rivelin and, and that, and just, you know, having that view oh, in my house Rivlin, where, where beautiful. yeah, well, I'm just looking out my window now and I can just see concrete stuff and ballards and stuff. And Well, that's uh, the thing, isn't it? Yeah. So, um, I mean, it's not a coincidence that, that um, you know, the, the entire uh, concept of rambling as a, mm. uh, as a leisure activity originated, you know, in Sheffield because yeah. it was like a way of... Um, mitigating you know the effect the mental health effects of working in yeah. you know very dark and dangerous factory situations normally um and and you know i remember my dad when i was growing up he was quite old when when he had, they had me he was 50 mm. so he was more like my granddad really yeah. but he used to um uh, he used to take us out into the, you know, on, go on the bus. We didn't have any money, but we didn't have a car or anything. Yeah. But go out on the bus to like Fox House and uh, yeah. out into Derbyshire and stuff like that. And that was like, to us, it was like a world of wonder, you know, yeah. this beautiful, 
and Castleton and Heathersage yeah. and all that stuff. Loved it. Loved Blue, it. Blue John it. Tavern. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, to the extent that about, I mean, I've been married now for, what is it, 20, 30 years near on. And in the first 10 years, I was considering moving back to Sheffield or near Sheffield. Yeah. And went to see a place in Hathersage, and it was right on. It was beautiful because you could, you know, obviously the prices were much less than London. Yeah, then yeah. could buy a fucking castle, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, and there was this beautiful house came onto the market, which I went to see, and it had a garden that that swept down to the River Trent, yeah. uh, and all you could see out of the bedroom window. It's like something out of out of uh, Grand Designs or something, <laughs> was the full yeah. length of the River Trent with trees on either side. You couldn't see anything of the 20th century yeah. or 21st century at all. And I just thought, oh, my God, I, it was just a bit too early for me to go that bucolic, you know. Yeah, well, I, I live on the east side of Manchester, so I can get to Sheffield in 45 minutes. I don't like to be too far oh, away oh. from the old place. But then I've got the benefits oh, of being here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Slate Pass. Uh, Woodhead's my favourite these days. Um, but, you oh. know, we all have his favourite roads, I suppose. I don't know why I'm talking about this. <laughs> anyway, have you, have yeah. you got a favourite road, Martin, from being on the road? <laughs> it's very Alan Partridge. Yeah, I know, yeah, it is, yeah. I do apologise. Uh, um, do you know, I don't drive, so I don't yeah, really Oh, yeah, yeah, I, sure, yeah. I, I prefer trains. Yeah, no, I, lo- I love that. And you, you mentioned there just uh, your, your upbringing in Sheffield, very working class upbringing that, that you go into quite a lot of detail in the book as well, which is lovely. You paint a nice picture of um, the old industrial ways of Sheffield and how bleak it was, but you, you paint you paint a, a, a good picture of the history of Sheffield as well when you talk about your upbringing, which is nice. Yeah, it's, well, I mean... You know, I think it's it's wrong to say it was bleak. Okay. Uh, it will, I mean, not having money is different to having a yeah. kind of, you know, black and white existence. Mm. I mean, I, I, my upbringing was very colourful, you know, colourful, I mm. think, looking back on it now. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I, there was a lot more, uh, a bigger sense of community, mm. and we didn't have really very much in the way of luxuries or anything. Yeah. Um, but we had, uh, you know, lovely people live around us and we could play out in the street and, yeah. you know, uh, we knew everybody in, in, in our local street and Hope Street was just off mm. Western Street mm. near the, just down from the Arts Tower. Mm. And uh, when I was growing up and then moved to Burn Grieve and all that stuff. And that was less salubrious. Yeah. Uh, um, but I, you know, we grew up in council houses and, and I, everybody, there's a kind of patronizing looking back on that. Oh, you, you poor thing. Council <laughs> yeah. Do you know what? They were amazing. Yeah. Cause we grew up in a two, two down house with an outside toilet and no bathroom. Mm. And then all of a sudden we were given a, a house with central heating mm. and a bathroom. Yeah. You know, I mean, I couldn't believe, couldn't believe it. It was brilliant, and then, you know, so on and so forth. Obviously, the rest as soon as, uh, as, soon as we moved to London, that's a different thing entirely. Yeah. But um, so anyway, I'm very proud of Sheffield. Very yeah. proud of my roots, mm. and as I mentioned in the book, you know, there's a lot of uh, oh, obviously, you know, 
40 years in the music industry in London. I've got a lot of contacts and stuff. Yeah. And the general uh, attitude towards Sheffield, certainly in my world, is everybody thinks it's a really cool city. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why I'm saying, coming back to my original point, yeah. it needs to be a bit more proud of itself, you know, yeah. a bit more and a bit more pushy, mm. for want of a better yeah. word. Because, um, you know, I, I'm also involved in various... As you get older, you get asked to be, you know, involved in various more serious endeavours and, yeah. you know, kind of ambassadors for various things and on boards and all that stuff. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I do honestly think, I do take an interest in, this is quite Alan Partridge as well, in yeah. uh, in uh, not not traffic redevelopment in the centre of Sheffield, but yeah. uh, I, I do take an interest in... in um, urban planning and all that stuff. Okay. It's something I, I, that fascinates me yeah. um, because I can see <clears throat> clearly uh, what needs to happen with Sheffield and it's all to do with funding. Mm. You know, well, there was a consultancy not long ago uh, where they were putting the word out saying, you know, what would you like the centre of Sheffield? You know, what would be good for the centre of Sheffield? Yeah. And it's just so blindingly obvious to me. The 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 key asset that Sheffield has, apart from the greenery and all that, is the people, you know. And the, the spirit of the people and and the kind of community spirit and all that stuff. So you want to do stuff that kind of, creates a reason for people to congregate in the centre. So things like, I don't know, maybe you have whatever the 21st equivalent is of a bandstand where you have, yeah. you know, you you have uh, music performances mm. or or a street theatre or, you know, entertainers or stuff to give people, a, you know, lots of kind of... Um, uh, kind of cafes and stuff and outdoor spaces. Everybody goes, oh, it's bloody raining all the time, it's cold. Well, you know what? Paris doesn't have a problem yeah. with it, and it's not the weather's not that much different in Paris, Manchester, don't or, or, or London for that matter, <laughs> yeah. you know. So, um, I, I just think it needs it's just such a tragedy. We're not in the EU anymore because mm. EU funding, speaking yeah. of Manchester, is really transformed Manchester, you know, uh, not just EU funding, but a lot of, a lot of outside funding. I mean, there's a big thing about Abu Dhabi yeah. and uh, funding in Manchester at the moment and all that stuff. But anyway, so I know what Sheffield, I understand what Sheffield yeah. needs. It's not, a, it's not a, a matter of um, waving a magic wand and making it happen. I mean, it yeah. needs some serious consideration, yeah. but a lot of it isn't about, uh, uh, spending loads of money, mm. it's about having the political will to do it. Yeah, no, it, it is frustrating as a Sheffield lad just walking down Fargate and just seeing how run down and empty the shops oh, it's are. Awful. And it's just, it's just so it used to be really hustle bustle. It used to be a great place to walk down, and they've moved it all down to the moor. They've kind of forgot about that part of town, <laughs> and it's just, it's frustrating to see. Well, but Castle Market yeah. and, and Castle Square and yeah. all that down there is an absolute shithole. Yeah. And it needs... They've been talking about redeveloping it for years, haven't they? So, I mean, it's funny. I was, as I mentioned in the book, looking back at the 70s, yeah. 
when I finished school. Uh, the general feeling at the time is that we were, you know, that the Thatcher had done for us with shut, you know, mm. with the e- economic imperative of shutting down all steelworks and everything. Do you know what? Anybody who wanted a full-time job then could get one. Yeah. Anybody. It did, I mean, you might not be the job you want, yeah. but the jobs were there and available full-time, yeah. 40 hours a week. It was a a, a, a thing of shame. I'm hardly known to do, like, part-time work. Yeah. And the city at that time, you've you got the hole in the road, you've got the whole connectedness of you know, Pinstead Street and Fargate and up to the cathedral and the moor. And he was, you know, he needed updating, but it was vibrant, you know. Oh, yeah, I, I can remember going under under all it roll and you used to see all bootleggers with the tapes on. Yeah. <laughs> and used to used to collect the, they used to be on like old bath she, uh, bed sheets, you used to collect all the yeah. tapes and run off when coppers come. <laughs> it was just a vibrant. Well, it, fish, you know what, it's, it's not, it's not a, uh, I, I don't think it's looking at, the past with rose tinted glasses yeah. you know you could literally go to town on a 2p bus ride yeah. and and you could justify walking the whole length of town right from mm. you know say uh, castle market which is which was vibrant yeah. and all the you know the kind of trendy clothing shops down there harrington's and all that you'd walk up through the hole in the road all the way up into town lots of shops lots of stuff going on yeah. The odd, um, the odd stall here and there, peace gardens, and then down the moor was rocking, you know. Yeah. And where are we now? Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully things will get better there. But let's crack on with the music. Here we can <laughs> we can talk about Sheffield all day. Uh, so you know, uh, you know, going back into the book a little bit. You know, you went to school. You met a young, cool lad called Phil Oakey there, and that kind of changed. Everything really, you know, you you were introduced to house parties, the girls, the drugs, and all that kind of yeah. stuff. That yeah. that was an interesting chapter. That um, uh, I was surprised how honest you were about those days as well with it. Well, it's an important part of things. Yeah. Isn't it? I mean, <clears throat> I mean, meeting people like uh, Cabaret Voltaire and mm. stuff like that as well, and then they introduced us to the kind. Things like blues clubs in Broomall and mm. fell in love with dub music and stuff like that. And then, of course, the fantastic Rare and Racer, which breaks my heart every time I go yeah. past it because it's yeah. still there. Why they shut it down? Yeah. What I mean, the the guy who was there in 1972, I can't remember his name, but I went there just before it shut recently, yeah. and he was he was still there. I couldn't believe it. And and you know that was. A major part of my education, musical education. Mm. Yeah. That show. Um, for, um, for people that don't know the story, Rare and Racy is where it's just on Devonshire Green, uh, not Devonshire Green, what yeah, it's Devonshire Green just off there, isn't it? Yeah. And the council decided yeah. to close this row of interesting, cool shops because they're going to build some apartments. Never happened. They've just closed the shops and they've not done the development. Typical kind of Sheffield <laughs> shitty well, uh, planning decisions. Um, yeah. Well, it, it, that, that, Rare Racer was important, yeah. but also on the corner of that row of shops was Mr. Kite's mm. wine bar, which is one of the first wine bars in Sheffield. And that's where, that was like a kind of, that's where all the bands used to meet and uh, and hang out and like. Is it the green bar see- now? 
Is it the green bar now, that one? Is it green? Yeah, okay. But, uh, yeah, we, I mean, you know, we used to go there occasionally with the cabs. I mean, all, obviously all the pubs nearby as well, yeah. but the, the wine bar seemed very posh. You know? <laughs> yes, of course. And, uh, and there was also a cocktail bar on West Street. Yeah. Oh, I can't remember his name now. Just round the corner from there. Yeah. And that's, we used to go there as well. But Mr. Kites was legendary because, you know, you see Martin Fry in there and yeah. Steve Singleton and, wow. and 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 the cabs and yeah. anyway we yeah. thought we thought we were cut above because we could afford a, a glass of uh, you know horrible cheap red wine and and you and you describe buying your clothes from female shops as well going in with Phil and you're, yeah it's straight away you were That's different cool. and you were, and you wanted to do things your way even at the early days of the Human League you know the birth of it all were, that that you created this. This monster that it became, um, you know, just those early days of you and Phil just being different from the start and wanting to do things your way came across really well in the book. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it was a matter of timing as well because yeah. the, uh, you know, got to bear in mind that it was the time of the start of glam. Mm. So it was at the end of the hippie period. And then the big boom thing was you know, the big realisation, of course, Bowie and everything, mm. uh, and Ziggy Stardust, but also Roxy Music was a big uh, a yeah. big event for us, mm. and everybody I knew. It, it kind of signposted a more artistic and a more glamorous kind of future, mm. which, for all its good points, Sheffield wasn't a glamorous place. Mm. You know, it was a... It was, uh, as I say in the book, it's like in the gutter looking at the stars, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, and then that ties into the kind of, uh, you know, the kind of working class theory of working all week and then going out at the weekends yeah. and dressing up, which is a big northern thing. Interestingly, I did a an installation with my company, Illustrious, an immersive sound installation mm. in Blackburn about um, Northern Soul mm. uh, in, in an old Northern Soul uh club which had been shut for 20 years we reopened it and yeah. kind of made the ghosts come to life <laughs> and all that stuff and i realized that it wasn't just northern soul but this kind of working your nuts off all week and then partying at the weekend yeah. and back in the days it was literally a packet of cash you got in your hand yeah. right i remember my dad coming home with the brown <laughs> A brown paper packet with the holes in, so he could see that he's not being cheated out of the money he's due, and all that. I can't imagine it now, can you? But um, and just for a few, for a couple of nights, you had this kind of escape from the humdrum, yeah. you know. And so, like glam coming along was a bit like that in yeah. general terms for us, and because we were so young, okay. Oh my god, this is so glamorous, and 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 also the proliferation of kind of American culture and TV and film, and uh, and also it's at the end of the kind of space race, yeah, kind of era as well. So you've got all these things all mashed up together, and then we started looking at um, at different musical ideas, you know. Not, I mean, I had very eclectic taste, so a lot of experimental stuff used to get just based on the. Any, I was buying anything I could find that was futuristic, basically yeah. from rare and racing because it didn't cost much. Yeah. It was 
give it back for half the price if you didn't like it anyway. <laughs> um, so everything from like experimental computer music, which was I wasn't really fond of, but lots and lots of kind of prog rock type stuff as well was a big influence. And um, so you you add, <laughs> yeah, if you add um, glam, yeah, love of Bowie and similar acts. Um, kind of this eclectic stuff. Um, meeting Phil Oakey, yeah. who had got a much broader uh, range of, you know, his parents were well off, so yeah. he and he got a, a big allowance because they. I don't think they spent much time with him, so it was like they were chucking money at him, yeah. so he could buy all these records, which I couldn't afford to buy yeah. until I started work, and then. So he taught me lots of lots of stuff. Yeah, so, so, and that, yeah. this is like a big, rich mix of mm. stuff that then translated into what we did later. Well, the uh, you mentioned it was part of you know at the end of the hippie movement, and like when the band got a bit of traction. Uh, I know you've got a a, a long uh, running relationship with John Lydon, but in the enemy, yeah. he, called, he called you fucking hippies right at the beginning. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that, I found that funny. Well, trendy hippies, I think he said. Oh, was it? Okay, fair enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that, must have been quite, that must have been quite a moment just to get a mention by John in, in, in the NME at the time. Yeah, no. it was interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, if I, if I had the right of reply at the time, I would have said fucking <laughs> rock band. Fair enough. A um, very good one. <laughs> yeah. But, um, it, it's like you couldn't get anything much more traditional than... than uh, than, uh, the, than the the kind of sound palette of that, could you? Really? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Brilliantly done. I'm not knocking it. I'm yeah. just saying, you know, there was nothing... To me, to us, yeah. at the time, it felt like it was the, it was the last uh, candle burning bright before it goes out mm. of rock and roll. Because really, it was like cynically trying to retread the tyres of ro- of traditional rock and roll and the palettes and everything. Whereas we thought, well, the future is clearly going to be these new instruments. Yeah. And uh, and new and a new range of sounds, you know, and that and that and so not everybody's interested in that, of course. Mm-hmm. Um and I looked uh you know, a lot of the uh, the punk stuff at the time, you know, I loved um the Damned, for instance, I mm-hmm. thought fantastic, and uh, I went to see a lot of them. We toured with Susan and the Banshees, yeah. who quickly evolved into a kind of post-punk thing, really. Um, and so, you know, the, the the in the in the fullness of time, people looking back on that period look at punk and they go, "Oh, yeah, it was fantastic." They were chucking out all the old stuff, and everything. no, they weren't. No, they weren't. We'd we'd already been through what the rest of the country was going through because we we were we were obsessed in the early seventies with kind of uh, early to mid seventies with um, you know with the New York scene. Yeah. So people like New York Dolls, uh, the Ramones, um, Blondie, even Blondie, you know, early Blondie, yeah. Suicide. All of those bands and many more were much more radical, and uh, shall we say, uh, outliers yeah. 
than than the kind of cynically marketed punk revolution, which at, at the echo of that, of course, is in the future, uh, is is you know Britpop, you know, and Brit, you know that ludicrous <laughs> confect, confected thing between Oasis and Blur, you know. <laughs> Like, oh, what do you what do you prefer, the Ruttles or the Kinks? You know, I mean, fuck's sake. Which which, which one do you like best, Oasis or Blur? <laughs> I don't like either of them very fair much. Enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I, you... I, think, I mean, Oasis wrote some really good songs. Okay. I have to say, Bastard. In, interestingly, I was um, I was mastering some remastering uh, some of. Terence Trent Darby's, yeah. Well, his first album, which I produced, and oh. um, I was remastering it for a re-release recently. Mm-hmm. And and the guy I was doing it with Barry Grint, who's like one of the best uh, mastering engineers in Britain. Yeah. He, I said, "What you've been working on?" Apart, you know, because they do loads of stuff. And he yeah. said, oh, "Well, I've just been doing uh, a reissue of some away, you know, the original Oasis albums," yeah. and. Um, he played me a bit, and he just sounded terrible. <laughs> I mean, the, the, just the sonic quality of it. Yeah. And he said, yeah, what?" I mean, they just, I won't get into technical details, yeah, but yeah. basically it was about the vibe on radio and they didn't care about anything else. Yeah. So, and, uh, so I thought, you know, Blur was a bit more quirky and interesting, yeah. but. You know what? It was all just bollocks, wasn't it? <laughs> well, you, you, you mentioned a massive name there that I can't go past really without just asking a question. You know, you, you, you talk about it in the book, meeting David Bauer. Wow. Yeah. Um, and just, you know, him entering the room and you could feel the presence of him straight away. Um, and he was at one of your gigs and it well, it, it, it made you really nervous. You, you had to step up because you knew Bauer was in the crowd. Was, um, well, I knew it. He came into our dressing room. Yeah. I was talking to him. In fact, I've got a photo of it. Wow. And uh, to prove I didn't imagine it. And um, <laughs> 10 minutes before we were due to go on stage. Yeah. Yeah. So it would make you nervous, wouldn't it? Yeah. That, that's um, one way to give you a kick and, in the arse. Yeah. So it was good. And then, you know, the following week he was in very kindly mentioned in top of the, in um, NME that he thought we were the future of music. Or he had witnessed the future of music. So that gave us a lot of confidence that we were heading in the right direction. What, one little thing you mentioned about Bowie was, you know, just his humour, which doesn't sometimes come across when people describe him, you know, how funny he is and down to earth and just, you know, uh, laid back. And you just imagine him being this, <laughs> this I don't know, this alien, don't you? But when you see, yeah. when, when you told the story of him being this real person and funny and, you know, cheeky and, you know, just, you know, down to earth, David. I think he always, I mean, as evidenced by like Tim Machine, mm. I think he just wanted to be one of the boys. Yeah. He, he liked, uh, I mean, I know I, I can't claim to be one of his close friends, yeah. but um, I know a lot of people who knew him really well, mm. and uh, including, you know, Tony Visconti and, uh, and, um, Kevin Kahn, who runs the, uh, the Bowie, the main Bowie fan club yeah. site. And um, they were all very close to him, of course. And he said he was just a laugh, you know. Yeah. He wanted to be 
in the words of Pulp, one of the common people. Mm. But of course he couldn't be, could he? It's impossible. And I think underneath it all, I think that might be why he got so hooked on on, uh, cocaine uh, and and smoking and a lot of people, and that's eventually what killed him, I think, probably. Um, and, you know, they say that cocaine is like, it triggers the same kind of pleasure receptor centres as, your, you know, the first time you fall in love, for instance, or or that warm feeling of, of, uh, 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 of, uh, of being amongst friends and, yeah. and, acquaintance good acquaintances and um it makes me wonder if that sort of thing might have been part of his yeah. addiction problem yeah, sure. another really interesting part of the book as well was describing sleeping in the bedroom next to iggy pop with <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> urge everybody you know if you do, if you're gonna invest in the book invest it for this yeah. chapter first have a read of this chapter well you know yeah. just as many um acquaintances queuing up uh around the hotel uh just waiting to spend a bit of time with Iggy Pop and you were the person that slept at the side of his bedroom mate yeah it was a <laughs> short straw if you got the bedroom <laughs> it, it was um uh, a true rock and roll animal. Yeah. That's all I'm going to say. You need to buy the book. Yeah, sure. No, yeah, we'll 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 we'll, we'll teach people with these little stories as well. Because yeah, you, you know, know this, the, you know, all the names that you've met, George Martin from you know, George Martin to name a few, Tina Turner. You jump started a career. All these type of stories yeah. are in the book. Yeah. So yeah. Um, Pink working with Pink Floyd, all the all these big massive names that I just that I think people just throw around without appreciating the the stature of these artists that you've worked with i think it's yeah. it's quite phenomenal to how, how do you look back on working with these people you know like looking back from now and just think can you still quite believe that well um no not really yeah. i mean all i can think is that i was a um i don't know it seemed it seemed to me that uh more in it was important to take advantage of any yeah. opportunities you got. Mm. So I was living when we got signed to Virgin. Uh, me and Glenn were both living in Notting Hill, yeah. uh, and I was living like literally five minutes away from Virgin Records on Portobello Road. And um, so we used to literally be down there three or four times a week. And became friends with a lot of the people who worked there. And it was quite a compact company at that point. So you could get to go in there and meet all the heads of department and discuss tactics and all that stuff. And just hang out at the pub, Mm -hmm. you know. And all the things that are important in terms of uh, business and human relationships, we were doing intuitively. And I really believe that our openness to... um, to new ideas was the key to it all or openness to trying things out and it takes a certain amount of bollocks yeah uh but i didn't think i didn't think of it in those terms at the time it was just Mm. it felt exciting and uh it felt like oh how can i explain it's like if you didn't try it you'd regret it 
You know what I mean? It's not so it's different from, oh my God, I'm so frightened in case I'll fail. There was none of that. Mm. It was like I was more frightened of missing an opportunity yeah. to see if I could do it. And if it if it didn't work out, that it seemed that there were going to be a lot more opportunities coming along that you could try. I, and I, that, I, that, I still that, think a lot of people kind of has lived with me all my life in all the things I've done. I still see a lot of people out in the community that don't put themselves out out of the comfort zone and just end up looking back on life and not doing much. You know, I'm just thinking of personal friends. I'm thinking of people I've known through the years. Where you know, there were plenty I, I, in Sheffield. There were plenty in Sheffield. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and in fact, um, I had a funny. I don't know if I mentioned it in the book, but no, I probably didn't. Uh, when we, when me and Phil reconnected, no, because it's, it's later than the book goes up to. Yeah. Uh, when I reconnected with Phil in the early 2000s, um, I was talking to him uh, and said, you know, he was telling me, I mean, I didn't really poke him about this or try and yeah. elicit any reaction. I said, you know, have you ever thought what might have happened if you'd have moved out of Sheffield? Mm. Uh, he said, oh, I didn't, didn't want to. I went down to, I went down to London one day. The, the the kind of turning point was I went down Kings Road. This is when they'd had a couple of hits with Dare. Mm. He was walking down Kings Road. This is from the horse's mouth, by the way. Yeah. I was walking down Kings Road, and uh, no. <laughs> Nobody recognised me. Hmm. I said, oh, it's not for me, this. <laughs> so I think it's the classic big fish, little pond thing. Uh, isn't it? Uh, yeah. And and uh, so there's that. And there's also, like, uh, there's a great term, an Irish term called begrudgery. Have you heard of that? Yeah. It's like where you begrudge people's success yeah. uh, because it makes you feel like a failure. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of that in the music. There used to be a lot of that in the music scene mm. in, in in Sheffield. The exceptions were people like, you know, cat, the cabs who were very generous. They were like our mentors. Um, and, you know, an ABC and people like that, we all supported each other at the time. Mm. But the ones who, it seems to be the ones who were more desperate to succeed, yeah. but didn't really understand, didn't have the... You know the 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 tools to do it mm. that really really bugged them. You know, so anyway, Sheffield's not exceptional in this respect. I'm sure it's the same everywhere. Yeah, sure. Well, it's interesting. Yeah, well, you mentioned just going back to Phil there. You know, uh, in the book, it's not all uh, plain sailing, uh, and then you know that. The, 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 <laughs> yeah, well, the the um, you know the the band you you technically got sacked from. The human league at some point yeah. you, you described the, yeah. the, that and you know the feelings behind all of that and um you know that must have been hard to take at the time um something you was, created it was i mean you know it's well documented but um it's well there are two two main things one is completely unjustified yeah. and two is completely unflagged or uh, un unexpected you know yeah. there was no indication uh, at all and i wasn't being naive i'm not stupid yeah. uh, i'm quite an empathetic individual i can feel um i'm pretty good at uh 
uh, uh, kind of feeling atmospheres and, yeah. you know, as proven by the fact I've had a long career in production and part of that is about being a psychologist, really, yeah. and understanding, how to, uh, you know, and understanding people, how they're feeling and blah, blah. Mm. No indication at all. So it came as a, com- a complete hand grenade. Yeah. And... Um, and it was, you know, it was obviously well documented. I don't really want to go into it again, but it was all uh, a fait accompli, you know. It was all pre-planned. Yeah, and it was just get two bands for the price of one, really. Well, yeah, and um, how do you feel about seeing them touring these days? Because, you know, they've, they've been touring recently. Is that still It's fine. I'm not, I, I, yeah. you know, we we did a tour with them in 2005. Yeah. Uh, the Steel City tour with them and ABC. So, yeah. you know. The hatchet is buried. Uh, we bump into him quite a lot. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. So moving on to Heaven 17 and BEF and all these amazing artists that you've brought yeah. up and uh, took under your wing as well under the BEF, British, uh, 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 I can't say it, uh, Electric Foundation. <laughs> I always think, yeah, say yeah. BEF, I can say other things. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just, you know, just your, your old mate, Glenn, who used, used to work in, um, no, he didn't used to work in co-op with you. He mentioned he took over the co-op after you managed it. Yeah, Glucose Town End, where I'm from originally, which is, which is yeah. quite funny, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I was born and bred around Glucose Town End, so I was just wondering where could that be, you know. It's got its own... I don't know, history. it was near some new new blocks of flats, that's all I remember. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah fair enough. Um, and, yeah, so, you know, Glenn, your old mate from Sheffield, got him in as a singer, and he never let you down since, and just flew with it, and just did amazing things, and it was original in his own right out there, weren't he? He just... It, it, it felt like he just, you know, he took the opportunity and ran with it. And yeah, all the, all, all all the pretend bands that that, that were mess, the messing about bands that we had in Meat <laughs> Whistle, which was the arts, yeah. the arts club, really, the the okay. youth arts club uh, that we were messing about with. Mm. He was always the singer. I mean, just bulletproof confidence. Yeah, <laughs> good looking lad. Yeah, all the girls loved him. He took full advantage. Yeah. And, um, but at the time we were looking for a singer for the Human League, he'd moved down to London. Mm. So, uh, and he was in a band called 57 Men, which became, uh, what's called? Wang Chung mm. when he left. Yeah. Um, and was he in a band with the guy who used to be in EastEnders, who you did a, a Sheffield Wednesday song with as well? Is there is there a link there? Somewhere? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. one of the pretend bands of me. <laughs> right, okay, yeah, that's him. Yeah, that's him. Mister Greg and Red. Yeah, <laughs> that was with uh, Lister was Addy Newton from Club DVA as well, uh, and yeah, Reddington. <laughs> Reddington did a couple of football records with me for yeah. Wednesday as well. Yeah, that's what I mean. The, uh, the, the Sheffield Wednesday ones. My my, my dad was oh, a Wednesday yeah. fan. Uh, my brother's a Wednesday fan. I'm a Blade. And they yeah. had, particularly when they got to Wembley every other year, it felt like Wednesday when they were doing really well. It just felt like, um, it's not my favourite memory of music, <laughs> having those Sheffield Wednesday tunes forced down yeah, the year yeah. old as a blade. <laughs> I know, I know. It was yeah. funny. I love, yeah. to be honest, that uh, that single that we did, If It's Wednesday, It Must Be Wembley, yeah. which is a play on that film, If It's Tuesday, It Must Be Belgium, yeah. uh, which was around all the time. <laughs> Um, and they uh, had this idea it was my idea to do the <laughs> the picture cover where we had like the traditional yeah. team shot at the start of the season you know yeah. in rows and me and Reddington in the middle in goalkeeper strip yeah. 
but the rest, all the players wearing like Blues Brothers Ray Ban glasses. And only yours without the glasses on. I thought it was quite neat. I can, I can remember it vividly. It, 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 like, you reminded me of Howard Pressman, you know, just because you, you had your goalie top on, didn't you? Uh, in in yeah. the middle, and it was like a black and white photo, weren't it? And blue and white. And, That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. 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 And um, the greatest thing was the, the, um, the uh, you know, they have a, like, when a team gets to Wembley, they have what's called a player's pool, mm. which is somebody from the team, from the squad, organisers, all the kind of money-making opportunities yeah. and signs contracts on behalf of them and blah, blah, blah. And um, <laughs> so the head the, the head of the players' pool was Chris Waddle. Right. So I, I was mates with all of them at that time. But, you know, I've got a contract somewhere, I don't know where it is, where, the, where I signed between uh, me and Virgin Records on one side and Chris Waddle and Sheffield <laughs> Wednesday on the right. other side. <laughs> about that record. And so I was doing all the negotiations with him, which was great, because I just think, what a player, you know. Oh, yeah. I was uh, at Wembley in 93, bang on line with Waddle's free kick when he scored it in top corner right. with Sheffield United. Oh, um, I went. <laughs> you can imagine. <laughs> and I thought we'd we, I thought we just, uh, you know, I, I thought we were nearly going to get there. Alan Cork with his lucky beard scored, and then Mark Bright finishes off. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, good times. Well, it didn't do us any good, did it? No, very not. But, uh, well, yeah, just just moving on a little bit with the music. I'm going to come back to the football and the you know the teaching and the, yeah. the other stuff coming up shortly. Um, so um, yeah, so the, you know you mentioned him earlier. Uh, you call him in the book Sonada. Uh, Terence Trent Darby. Uh, Sananda. Uh, uh, Sananda, sorry, my pronunciation's bad. So it's Sananda. Um, you know, other people will know them as Terence Trent Darby and, you know, yeah. the, the, you know, t- you know, doing your producing stuff, moved on from Heaven 17. Um, the amazing relationship and the, how, how working on his first album just kind of felt like a glove uh, creatively between you two. Yeah, yeah, uh, It was yeah. a nice story that you told in the book there. Yeah, I mean, he... Well, I mean, anybody who remembers his emergence onto the scene. Uh, see, people don't see the, the, what goes on behind it or before yeah. it. Mm. They, it. To the world, it looked like this kid had just emerged fully formed yeah. instantaneously <laughs> as a superstar, you know. And <laughs> the truth of the matter is, he was with a, a, a management stroke kind of development company doing various things and trying out different things for like, I think, four years before that mm. in Germany. Then, well, Germany and then moved to Britain. And um, so a lot of a lot of stuff had been happening. He'd been writing loads of, I found out later, he'd been writing loads of uh, demos and songs. And, in fact, the, the demo tape that I was sent was the most astonishing demo tape I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, they, they, it didn't feature any of the songs that ended up on the first album, but a lot of the songs sounded like kind of Stevie Wonder outtakes. He was in a kind of different headspace yeah. at that point. But what was clear was, firstly, he could write songs. Mm-hmm. Secondly, his voice was in, was just unbelievable. You know, it was like, where's this kid come from? And I remember thinking, uh, ringing up immediately and going, I've got to have a meeting 
you know, I, I really want to do this album. Mm. Uh, can we have a meeting tomorrow? And um, I thought, oh, I was laying there listening to it and um, thinking, God, I hope he's not ugly. <laughs> I hope he's not fat or, you know, I hope he's not, he's, he's not, he's not a, a nutcase yeah. or, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It could, there are so many things have to be in alignment for you to be a superstar. <laughs> yeah. It's not just the quality of the work, it's, the way you look, can you dance? Can you do it? And of course, you meet him, and he's like, looks like a god, yeah. and he dances like a god, and he sings like a god, and you're going right. It's, this is like <laughs> getting the ball a yard out in front of an empty net. Yeah. You know, I can't fuck this up. Yeah. <laughs> it's impossible. Uh, it, I, and I was right. You know, I mean, it yeah. was like. All that all that was uh, all I had to do is to make sure that he understood that I was going to. I know I knew what he needed to do because I'm a big soul fan, yeah. right? I mean, I used to go to Northern Soul clubs, and you know, I, I've always loved Motown, and my sisters used to play me that when I was little, and mm. you know, I, it's it's in my soul. I understand sort of black soul music. Yeah. And uh, but I also love pop music, so like that that kind of hybrid of influences is p- perfect for him. Yeah. And of course, I'd done Tina Turner by the, this time, mm. so my stock was quite high. Mm. Uh, and I'd done loads of um, other productions after Tina, uh, but none had you know reached the heights of of um, uh, of what would happen with Sananda, you know. So I remember saying to him, we made, I said, first thing at the meeting was, you know, I will, we will create this bubble in the studio, me, you, and Phil Lake, the engineer. It's us against the world. We will make this, and, you know, and, and the session players and the, you know, and the musicians. We will, uh, and I said to the record company at the time, I said, we will, I will, and I'll take responsibility for this. I will not accept any interference at all from the record company. You're not allowed, in fact, into the studio until we've finished it. Mm. Then if you want to give us some notes, you know, we'll consider it. But you can't interfere with the creative process. And uh, to to their eternal credit, they let us get on with it. Mm. And, um, and, the rest is history. You know, it's, it was, yeah. uh, I think, and it's still I'm very proud of it. I think it's an incredible piece of work all around. And I've just actually done a Dolby Atmos uh, remix of, of the whole thing, which you can hear on Apple Music, mm. uh, some other places as well. But um, And you can hear the 3D, the new 3D mix of wow. Don headphones in binaural. It's amazing. Wow, it's just such a an iconic moment, and the music industry being it like it is as well. You describe in the book that uh, you got a letter from him wanting to work with different people after that as well. So it's always highs and lows, and it there's never no, no, no. He didn't want to work with different people. Oh, okay. Sorry. He, wanted to, he wanted to do it all himself. Oh, yeah, that that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He wanted to. Yeah, it wasn't like he was going to yes. ask a better producer or a better yeah. engineer or something. Yeah, yeah. It, literally, <laughs> I've decided. Because he had a bit of a kind of competition in his mind going on yeah. with Prince and Michael Jackson. Right. 
I mean, it, this is how quickly it went to his head, basically. Because okay. right. um, he was as humble as humble could be yeah. when we made the album. And then all of a sudden he's on the front page of Rolling Stone in America saying, I am a genius, right? Okay. And I think he started out as a bit of kind of, you know, naughty uh, self-aggrandizement, a bit like Muhammad Ali kind yeah. of style. <laughs> but he very quickly started believing his own hype. Right. And um Do you think that's why you never that, like reached Yeah higher um you know higher planes? I mean he still did some amazing things, yeah. but my opinion mm. and I've told him this to his face, you know, yeah. it's not because we're back in contact now, he was on my podcast. Oh, yeah. Um you know, he needs a so even if it wasn't me, he needs a, a mm. kind of sub editor yeah. for his ideas. Or uh, you know, somebody to bounce off. Um, so the first album sold like 10 million copies wow. world, worldwide. And the second album sold 300,000. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's a, it, what a roller coaster the music industry is. You must know it more yeah. than anybody. Really? Um, well, I, I know teaching's a, a, a big passion of yours and I can remember seeing you in real life once. Uh, I was a New Deal kid down at Darnell Music Factory in Sheffield. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, I was a New Deal kid, and you used to come and do talks down there and talk That's to right, us yeah. and, and that kind of stuff. So even back then, I don't know how many years ago, probably 20 years ago or something now, um, you know, where, you know, you, you had that passion to give something back to uh, to the new, to us youngins coming through. <laughs> That's right. Well, actually, a friend of mine, Frank Wilkes. Yeah, I know him well. He used to run uh, Darnell Music Factory. Yeah. And I'm still in touch with him. We do all sorts. Yeah. He's always got some scheme going on. Yeah. And uh, and he, he, as part of the deal, we got to play Donald Music Factory as well with M17. And um, I, I introduced that gig. That was did one you? I, yeah, I was the compare for that gig. Yeah, at the Ultimate Academy go. in Sheffield, yeah. There you go. It's a good night, actually. Yeah. Uh, wearing Wednesday shirts as well. <laughs> um... And then, yeah, so we did that. Uh, but, yeah, education, mm. it's interesting. Because it kind of came from my love and understanding of, you know, my career would never have happened were it not for Meat Whistle, yeah. you know. that, uh, uh, And that was paid for by the local council. It was run by Chris and Veronica Wilkinson. I will forever, until the day I die, thank them for their brilliant idea which mm. introduced me to all my friends who I'm still friends with and my career yeah. uh, and gave me the confidence to you know to do all that stuff and one of my big kind of you know kind of campaigns if you like or passions is to help young people mm. find their path in a in a playful you now playful is not the right word in a less formal way yeah. you know so help them to express themselves artistically and, and kind of find which ball their ball should fall into in the big pinball of life, you know. Uh, and it's it's tough now because there's not so much in the way of youth clubs. Uh, education has become much more formalised and monetized now, yeah. um, which I disagree with completely, by the way. I don't like um, until recently, I was principal of Tyler Yard Education. In fact, I just ended in January. Uh, 
And uh, part of the reason I'm not there anymore, and, and it's because I, I feel a bit uncomfortable about the amount of money that people are being charged mm. to um, to be trained to do stuff which where the qualification doesn't necessarily qualify you for anything. Yeah. You're much better off, you know, doing practical stuff. So anyway, I've always done lecturing, uh, always supported young people. I was I was responsible for getting uh, an under twenty five representative on the on the Ivers Academy board for the first time, and now the young younger people are driving the agenda yeah. for the biggest songwriting organisation in Britain, awards organisation and lobbying organisation. Yeah. Um, and I just feel I feel obligated to give something back, you know. And it's mm. not a you look at me, aren't I great thing? I'm not yeah. bothered about that. Uh, I don't need any more, you know. I've got honorary doctorate of music from Sheffield, which is nice. Yeah. Um, but I don't really need any more awards or yeah. stuff. I just, you know, I just think I've got the. It all changed when I had kids, basically. Yeah. In late late nineties. I suddenly started as they were growing up, seeing the world through their eyes, mm. and uh, seeing well. To this day, it's, it's uh, my opportunities were much greater than theirs, mm. in my view. Even though nominally they've got amazing qualifications and stuff, it's a tough world out there for yeah. young people. Oh yeah, well, and they're and they're and they're, they're kind of criticised in the press and the, yeah. particularly the right wing press, you know. <clears throat> Uh, lazy, feckless millennials, you know, a load of old bollocks, you know. Mm. And oh, oh, we worked hard for our money. No, you didn't. You, you've gone through a period of 20 or 30 years where property prices have gone through the roof. Yeah. No fault of yours. You didn't work for that money. Yeah. I didn't work for the. I bought a house in London for £360,000 yeah. and I just cashed in for like nearly £3 million. I didn't earn that money. That's unearned money. I'm not complaining, but I'm just saying. Yeah. So all them people who say, oh, but they're not, you know, older generation, you know, we post-war, we had to really fight for it. No, you didn't. If you owned your own house, you were just making money by default all the time. Yeah. So. Well, your, your education is very much appreciated. I had... Uh, Martin Atkins on the pod, uh, on the podcast, which I know you've had on your oh, recently as well. Yeah, yeah re- really good lad. And uh, just from uh, just from speaking to you know people like that in the industry that are giving back now, where he does his uh, schooling from Chicago, um, but he, he still spent a little bit of time with me, just helping me out with some ideas that I had. And I, I had a little thing in my head where RGM was all, always started as a Sheffield thing. And when I when I asked him about you know, when I'm trying to help bands at grassroots levels, because that's kind of where I specialise and try and give back a little bit myself as well, by putting them on, uh, putting gigs on and just yeah. trying to help them through the magazine and stuff. Um, I was just asking, what kind of tips would you give to bands? And his advice was be as creative as create memories for fans rather than just put on a gig and then you, you, you're straight off after the gig and then every, the crowd's there just like, Okay, that's a gig. Try, try and create memories for fans, and that could be anything yeah. of standing on the merch stall, speaking to people, give somebody who's skin a free T-shirt. Just, just you know, being there for the people around you after the gig is more important than the actual gig itself, which I found. Yeah, and I would argue also that um, try uh, you know if you're on a tour, which yeah. obviously we do lots of this stuff. Mm. Try in in even if it's only in a small way, make every gig different. So yeah. that if 
if uh, it might just be changing the set list or doing mm-hmm. something special or, yeah. you know, people understand if you are passionate about your music. Yeah. They understand it. I mean, perfect example is John Rev, you know, yeah. uh, John, John McClure. Mm-hmm. It's impossible not to be enthusiastic about Reverend and the Makers, no matter what you taste in music, because the guy is just a dynamo, right? He just loves what he does so much, and therefore the audience loves what he does. He engages with the audience online. He even goes to people's fucking houses and plays in the houses sometimes. You know, I'm not saying everybody should do that, but, (laughs) you know, with M17, it's a, you know, one of our main... um, uh, appeals, I believe, is our our uh, warmth and interaction with the yeah. audience live. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, we really believe in entertainment. Mm. You know, it's not, you're not like some God, you're not got some God-given talent that's handed down from on high yeah. and you just got to turn up and perform and then everybody, you know, drops to their knees with awe. You know, you've got to and you know you're in the show business mm. that's why people come back to multiple shows yeah. we've got we got a bunch of like everybody you know got a bunch of super fans and stuff yeah. there are there are a couple of guys who have been to uh nearly 200 gigs of ours wow. for instance and that's that, that's way over the top but that what you're seeking is that kind of loyalty, that brand loyalty. Yeah. And we don't have the biggest audience, you know. If we put a record out, it doesn't sell a huge amount. Uh, it gets listened to a lot, of course. It's streaming services now, but it's it's more important to us to maintain the loyalty of the people who stuck with us all this time. Yeah. You know, and I'm, I, that's a great. Um, a great lesson for any young band is to is to build up your audience that way. Mm. You know, not everybody's going to be, you know, world famous or even nationally famous, yeah. but you can make a living out of it. You know, another if you, if you can. yeah, another tip Martin said as well was the fans might not be in your city. <laughs> so some bands make the mistake of trying to break their own city first but your fans might not be there. You know, the world's a big place right. outside of your own bubble, uh, you know, and, you know, get out there, you know, in, invest, t- take the chance to, you know, to lose money out there in the world and just get out there and find where your uh, tribe is really as well. Yeah. And try and try different things. And yeah. please, I would urge people. I know a lot about this scene because I, I say I work yeah. with the Ivers Academy. So I get the inside dope on what's happening. Please, please, please don't fall for this big data bollocks. You know, like, uh, oh, you know, everything should be, you know, your main energy should be directed towards getting as many followers as possible and all that. Of course, you know, it's it's a new world, so we've got to, you've got to look at that. But that's a false god to be worshipping, in my view. You've got to get out there. If you do right, to put it in a nutshell, I believe if you do, uh, as an artist, if you do things for the right reason, mm. and you you you're passionate about it, and you do it with a sense of kind of artistic integrity, yeah. then people will dig it. Yeah. And the opposite is true. If you do it thinking, "Oh, I just want to be famous," yeah, and you you just kind of go through the motions, 
that is likely to fail, or at least it might work in the short term, but it won't work in the long term. I mean, I'm 40 years on. People are still turning up in bigger numbers than ever to see how the same team yeah. perform live. Our, our streaming figures get bigger every year. Mm. You know, that's because when we started, we had an idea, an artistic idea, an integrated artistic idea behind mm. what we wanted to do from the way we presented ourselves. Mm. We didn't perform live back in the day, but, you know, TV, videos, um, album artwork, advertising, everything was integrated. Of course, songwriting, themes, um, et cetera, and, and try and do things at the highest possible quality level you can, yeah. both in, term, in production terms and, and songwriting terms. That's why, by the way, to get onto the current day, we are not releasing very much stuff at the moment mm. because there just isn't the um, economic... Mm. There isn't the economic justification for spending, say, three to six months making an album to do it to the level that we want to do and the quality that we want to do. All we can do now is, because we don't want to sell giant amounts of it anyway, yeah. all we can do now, do now is destroy our legacy <laughs> if we do it badly. I interviewed, you know? I interviewed Miles Hunt from The Wonder Stuff, and he said a similar thing. He's stopping recording. He's going to go out and do live gigs and stuff, but yeah. for the exact same reason, it's, it, it might cost him 10, 15 grand to record um, whatever he records, but he's never going to make that money back, so it's just not. It's Never. not worth it. It's not going to happen. Mm. Um, of course, it works in terms of profile. Yeah. Um, but I'm just not convinced that there's that much of an appetite for for um, stuff. And, you you know, artists, as artists, you are what you eat. In other words, you know, your influence, you, you know, the, the zeitgeist around where you're, yeah. you're at in your life affects what you write. I mean, I'm a 66-year-old man with two, with two grown-up kids yeah. living in – Kind of middle class luxury in London. Of course, it's not. I'm, it's not going to. The music that I write, if it's authentically coming from inside me, it's not going to sound the same as, yeah. you know, a, a poor lad coming from Sheffield yeah. living in a council flat. It's just yeah. not going to. Yeah. Uh, no matter how much you'd like it to. So, um, I mean, I, obviously, I still write a load of stuff, and I do a load of stuff for artistic. Yeah. installations and i'm doing a big gig in sheffield actually okay. i should um at the octagon center mm. on may the on uh, may the 6th which is coronation oh, my birthday. day my birthday I'll, I'll put a link to the to the, to the game yeah. as well on this podcast for you mate yeah yeah and it's a big it's going to be an immersive three-dimensional sound wow and uh we're gonna i'm gonna be doing some new versions of some original music for stowaway stuff oh, nice in 3D, yeah. hopefully with some live strings as well, uh, but also, um, and, and some other stuff as well, some sound healing stuff. And, Watch this space. Or, uh, and, and some stuff that I've co-written with my son, Gabriel. Oh, no. And also um, managed to get Steve Davis from, <laughs> okay. uh, you know, snooker player, DJ. who's now a DJ and musician oh, in, with his right. band, The Utopia Strong. He plays modular synth. Right. Uh, he's playing, and uh, Richard Norris from The Grid is oh. going to do it as well. So it's going to be a great night. Great night. Nice. Well, I'll put a link to that. Looking uh, forward to do that not, Do not miss do it. Not it's going to be a, probably a one-off concert. Oh, so Nice. Nice. 
Well, there's one other tip that we could give uh, musicians as well that I took away from your book. Don't turn down a meeting with Clive Davis. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Yes, I'll tell him about that. So uh, in the middle of we're in the middle of recording Luxury Gap in the townhouse in London. And we're under the cosh time wise. You know, we've got like a week left to finish three or four mixers. And uh, we were really busy. And then we got this phone call. Uh, we'd just been signed to Arista, which is Clive Davis. Yeah. He was a legend in the music yeah. business. Uh, we'd just been signed to Arista uh, in America. And he happened to be in London. And at short notice, we got this call from Virgin saying, oh, um, Clive Davis wants to have lunch with you. And I'm going, well, we can't. We're, you know, we're mixing these... We just can't do it. We don't. We don't have time. <laughs> um, and say so apologise, you know. But um, tell him we can come down to the studio if he wants. So we'll, we'll say, okay. <laughs> yeah. Next thing we know, <laughs> it pulled all the promotion for Heaven Seventeen in America. Because yeah. these people have talk about big heads. I mean, they have heads bigger than a planet. You know, it's all about them. We are just tiny little moons, uh, you know, orbiting their giant sun, you know. Anyway, so, mate, that was a mistake. Uh, We should have downed tools and just smoothed in for a couple of hours. Well, we live and learn, don't we, mate? We live and learn. Well, there's loads still coming up. You know, your podcast is great as well. Um, Thank you. So I'll put a link to the podcast as well on there. You've got volume two of the book coming out, I presume. Uh, Well, I haven't written it yet. Oh, right. Okay, fair enough. I've got got to get an offer from the publishers or or, or from my literary agent who thinks it's worth doing. I did did volume one in in lockdown, so I had loads and loads of time. If I do volume two, I've got to yeah, I've got to put aside a lot of other stuff, you know yeah. what I mean? So, Well, we've teased a lot of stuff on the book. I urge anybody to download I, I listen to the audio book so I can hear you read it to me. Um, nah, and, uh, the audio book's good, actually. I would recommend that. Yeah, great, it's great. And, um, yeah, is Sheffield Wednesday going to go up this year? I can't, I can't jinx it by saying that, can I? <laughs> okay, fair enough. Do you I think can't. Sheffield United will go up? Oh, United will go up, but... Uh, I'd love to have Sheffield United on Wednesday in the Premier League again one day. Oh, it'd be great, wouldn't it? Yeah. I, I don't have a problem with United going up at all. Yeah. I think it's great. I'm just happy for the city, you know. Yeah, nice. Um, but, um, oh, God, we've got to go out of this division, yeah. honestly. As a blade stuck in League One for many, many years, mate. Fifth circle of hell, honestly. Yeah. yeah. Endless <laughs> fucking Fleetwood towns, you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Just hoofing the ball and rolling about yeah. on the floor. I can't deal yeah. with it anymore. The, you know, a lot of the teams that bomb off the table just don't want to play football. Yeah. They can't play football. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I don't blame them, but, you know, this kind of obsession with the dark arts is getting ridiculous now. <laughs> and, again, and also, to compound it all, I'm not one for kicking referees because I think they've got a very, very difficult job. Yeah. But this, honestly, the standard of refereeing in League One yeah. is is just unbelievable. Yeah. Week in, week out. And I'm not just saying against Wednesday. I'm saying the standard mm. is yeah. just not very good, you know. And so the FA need to have a serious look at how they train referees. Yeah. 
Because they're all, uh, I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, fair enough. Well, we wish Wednesday all the best. As a blade, anyway, I've got family members that are Wednesday fans. So, yeah, oh, I wish you all the best. It'd be good to get, get, get in the same division, wouldn't it? Yeah. Ultimately. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Hopefully, the Premier League. Martin, really appreciate your time and your gener- generosity with your time today. I've really enjoyed uh, speaking to you. Right. Um, and yeah, That's good luck with going. everything. I'll, I'm going to buy myself a ticket for my birthday to come see your octagon. That sounds like oh, a great brilliant. night. And uh, yeah, thanks for your time, mate. Appreciate it. All right, mate. Thanks so much. Oh, cheers, Martin. Thanks, mate. Really appreciate your time. Very generous with his time. Uh, just had all the world, all, all the time to discuss his amazing career in the music industry. Uh, and his book is available as well uh, within the description of this podcast, as we mentioned in, in there. Uh, he's got his own podcast as well. You know, the link to that is in the description too. So if you're interested in knowing a more, you know, more in depth about. Martin's career everything's in there and the gig that we mentioned in Sheffield on the 6th of May my birthday uh, there's a link to join him at the Octagon in Sheffield there too and yeah what an interesting amazing time I have doing these podcasts podcasts such a privilege to speak to the people that we do and share it with you my favourite people in the world thank you so ladies and gentlemen that's me for another week I think um, you can watch the video, the video version of the podcast on YouTube. There's a little subscribe on there as well. Oh, oh, oh! And if you can do the old, uh, give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify. You can leave us a little review. That's I need to be doing that more because that that really helps grow podcasts. Apparently, boring, boring algorithm stuff, but it's supposed to help. So if, if you do get a couple of minutes, leave us a review. Cheers, pal. Five star, of course. You know, messing about with anything else. Thank you. Uh, so, yeah, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us this week again for another podcast. We're going to be here next Monday, of course. Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen. Toodaloo. Welcome to RGM. Are you in a band? Come and join us. Simply click on the RGM submission page, submit your music, and we'll sort the rest. Hello. Did you know that you can support our podcast in many ways? Within the description of this podcast, you will see a list of all the equipment that we use. These are Amazon affiliate links. Clicking on these links take you to Amazon. If you buy whatever you're planning that week, we get a small kickback and you get a parcel at no extra cost. We would really appreciate your support. Or you can just go old school and donate a pound or whatever you feel is appropriate in there. Please subscribe. Tell a friend about our show. And thank you for your support. And we'll see you next week.